This is the One Soldier Podcast, Episode 12. In this episode, I'm joined by best-selling author and historian James Donovan, whose book, A Terrible Glory, Custer and the Little Bighorn, is in my opinion, the best account of this epic battle and massacre, which took place in June 1876. Custer's Last Stand, or the Battle of the Little Bighorn, has confounded historians for over a hundred years. There were no white survivors, and the Indians who were there were hesitant to speak candidly for fear of retribution. Yet Custer and the battle remains one of those iconic historical events that symbolizes the western frontier and the inexorable push of civilization against the wilderness. James Donovan joins me from his home in Dallas, Texas, to talk about Custer, Chief Sitting Bull, and the battle which defined the American West. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you ready for this? Sure, man. Okay, awesome. Well, James Donovan, welcome to the podcast. I'm really, really excited to have you on because you've written some very highly successful books. And I'm thinking, I know last year you had a book published about the Apollo mission. And before that, you had a book about the Alamo and also a terrible glory, Custer and the Little Bighorn, which I have been a fan of for quite some time. So, so thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. You were, uh, are you still a literary agent? Because I saw that uh, before you sort of went down the, the road of author, you were uh, a literary agent. That's what I do during the day. I've been doing it for 27 years, uh, still doing it. And you might be shocked to hear that uh, most of the books I sell are history, American history. Right. Seems obvious. Lots of Old West stuff because, you know, I know the, know that area really well you know books on billy the kid and jesse james and the okay corral things like that like some very good writers but yeah i do that during the day and uh write and research during the night on weekends sweet uh even though we're in the 21st century with you know zoom and TikTok and you know all this stuff i can barely keep up with uh history especially older history is kind of a kind of a comfort food i think for uh for reading you know it's it's just romantic in the old sense of the word and um people still there's a healthy market for it yeah when you're like you, you've written about these big iconic historical events when you sit down to write a book and like tackle these projects is there a part of you that is thinking this has been done before like how am i going to how am i going to do this or do you already have like a an angle no great question uh well, uh, I was a lot younger when I took on Custer, and boy, if I'd known afterwards uh, how much was written on that, but I was a little naive. But um, I get that question a lot for different um, different subjects, like, you know, what's your angle? And you know what? My angle is no angle. I mean, I just try to do all the research I can. I mean, everything for the Custer book. I wanted to look at anything ever written about it, just about all the testimony on both sides of the ball, so to speak. Uh, you know, the Indians, there's like 75 to 100 uh, well-done, good interviews of Indians over the next 50, 60 years. And I just want to look at everything out there and, and try to be as objective as possible. And of course, you're never as objective as you think you are, but because uh, everybody has biases, some of them subconscious. But uh, try to be as objective, as, at least if you're aware of it, it helps. And just tell the story as accurately and dramatically as possible. For instance, the uh, the Custer book, 
Uh, I did a coffee table book a few years before A Terrible Glory, and by their nature, coffee table books aren't in-depth. You know, I read 20, 25, 30 books on it, wrote text, got lots of photos. It was a lot of fun. But I realized after doing that that there had been, since about the 1980s, uh, lots of advances and tons of good research in this on this subject. There had been, uh, I don't know, you probably know that in 1982, there was a fire on the battlefield, which just burned everything to a crisp, unearthed all these new artifacts, which they started gritting out and, and interpreting forensically. And they started doing other digs, archeological digs all over the battlefield, which contributed greatly to what we know about the battle. Uh, there had been a man named John Gray did a, a book uh, of, uh, that incorporated time-lapse uh, motion studies um, of the, the battle, like every 10 minutes or so. And finally, another man named Gregory Mikno, Greg Mikno, who's done a lot of good history books, he did a book called Lakota Noon, which took all the, just about most of the reliable or well-done Indian accounts and really put them together and organized them well every about, again, about every 15 minutes. And, and it really made a lot more sense of that because for a hundred years, uh, historians had just kind of thrown up their hands and said, man, I, how are you gonna reconcile this, all this different contradictory Indian, Indian testimony make any sense of it? So the only surviving people who had seen Custer's part of the battle and you know they had left the counts, but they weren't uh, taken into credit by a historian. So. Yeah, so, anyway, so all those things real I, I realized that somebody had to put all this stuff together into a narrative. And so that's what I took on. Yeah, right on. Well, I, I don't know if this is true, but I, I heard somewhere that Custer and the Bighorn was the second most written about or studied historical event in American history, right behind World War II. And like I, I haven't verified that, but it's definitely believable. I'm almost positive it is. There's more books written on a little bighorn custer than there are on Gettysburg, which might be the most important battle, you know, on American soil. Well, it easily is uh, because of that mystery. You know, for a long time, nobody knew exactly what happened to Custer and his 210 or 11 men on Last Stand Hill. You know, seven other companies survived, uh, but, you know, about maybe 300 men, but um, nobody knew exactly what happened because there were no white survivors. And of course, I, I think I just told you, nobody really took the, uh, the Indian testimony kind of seriously at first. Yeah. So we, yeah, there's a lot more, there's a lot of books on it. Lots of books on it. Yeah. And they still, they're still coming out. I, I'm kind of wondering, like when you match, like, are you able to match up the Indian testimony with, with what we do know? Like, does it match up well? Or is there like well, just a lot of like contradictions? Well, there are contradictions and there are some that are just totally off the wall. I mean, you've got faulty translators. You've got translators that are self-serving and, you know, want to interpret things their way. Also, you've got Indians who, are, who have their own agendas. I mean, you know, the story about all, there was a Cheyenne story that came out a few years after the battle. A few Cheyennes said, oh yeah, all the men near the end, they all killed themselves. Yeah. Well, Indians for decades, many decades after the battle were terrified of retribution. So they were going to go, they were going to say, yeah, we, we went on, you know, up there and, you know, chopped heads off and, you know, scalps and killed everybody and, and uh, mutilated them. And they weren't going to say that. So it was a way of saying I was there, but 
I didn't kill anybody. They were worried about retribution. So that's one of the reasons for that specific story. Yeah, worried about some payback. Yeah, I mean, you know, you never know. I mean... Well, and that, and that, that kind of did happen, right? Like, isn't Wounded Knee like... Uh, like, wasn't that like some payback for, for that defeat? Yeah, good point. I mean, and I write about it near the end of the book, the last chapter, that uh, here we go, you know, what, 14 years later, there were still several officers and enlisted men and sergeants, uh, non-coms in 7th Cavalry, which was the main force uh, during Wounded Knee. And there was some talk on the nights before about payback. Definitely believable. Right, exactly. So uh, up here in Canada, we've got this like highly stereotypical view of Americans that like Americans love a winner and, you know, love to patriotically wave the flag. And, and by the way, this is something Canadians do all the time. Like we love to compare ourselves with America. It's like an inferiority <laughs> complex. But like Custer isn't, uh, at least at the end, Custer is not a winner. What, what do you think is the allure of Custer? Because he's definitely like a legendary figure. Yeah, you know because he was a loser is why he's let's face it he's probably immortal if he was a winner if he had won that battle he wouldn't the, the average man on the street would never have heard of him he'd be his fame would be much lower uh, on the level of something like george crook or maybe nelson miles you know men who fought the indians but nobody really knows who they are except uh, people who read a lot of, of western nonfiction and know the history he was an interesting man. He was a fascinating individual in some ways. You know, his his uh, marriage to Libby Custer is, I think, one of the great American love stories. He was a kid from, you know, the that American success story. You know, he was a kid from the wrong side of the tracks. You know, his father was a blacksmith and with a bunch of kids. And um, Libby was a judge's daughter, high-bred, patrician, beautiful, and her father did not like her even having anything to do with this young Custer. Uh, but um, once he became a general, he changed his uh, tune, yeah. oddly enough. Uh, Custer's, uh, it, it, you know, if he if he hadn't lost that battle, we wouldn't be talking about him. Yeah, and I guess it's the, the mystery is, uh, like you said, it's, that's what people come back to. In Canada, we... We never really had, like, in our textbooks, we, we have, like, a lot of dwelling on the historical wrongs committed to the Indians in, in the prairies and the West in general. But we never had a Custer. We never had a Sheridan. We never had a little Bighorn. I mean, there were, like, some small skirmishes, but we never, we never really had that, like, military campaign. And I think most of the reason for that is because by the time Canada starts expanding westward, the buffalo are already gone. And the, the Indians are not in any condition to fight. But in 1876 in America, there's obviously still some like fighting capability. So what was like, can you just give us like a bit of background on, on the, the lead up to the Americans and Custer finding yeah. the little bighorn? Sure. Well, 1873 had uh, seen a uh, financial depression. It was called back then. They were called panics. It was the panic of 1873. Started with some railroads, but so uh, it was still being felt three years later, um, early 1876. And there was a lot of unemployment. As a matter of fact, a lot of the enlisted men in the 7th Cavalry had been uh, just street guys. You know, lots of them Irish, some Italian. Uh, in the big cities in the East, like Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Brooklyn. 
who couldn't find a job and, you know, joined the, joined the army for three squares a day in a cot. And once they got out West, they take what they called the big bounce. They uh, probably 25% of them, something like that desertion rates. And they go, you know, there was a lot of, um, rushes like gold rush and tin rush and platinum, you know, things like that. And so they go up to different minefields in Colorado, et cetera. So that was kind of the background of it. Uh, as far as the Indian question, you know, there, there were reservations, mostly along the Missouri River, where most of the Indians had been kind of herded. Agencies, they were also called. Uh, but there were about maybe 3,000, 2,500 or 3,000 uh, what, what was termed by Sheridan, uh, General Sheridan, hostiles, Indians who would not come into the, uh, into the agencies and continue to live their lives unfettered, chasing the buffalo, what, what few buffalo were left. There were some, but there weren't as many by 1876. And they just, didn't, they just wanted to live like they'd lived for maybe 150 years, uh, you know, when you think about uh, when the horse came over with the Spanish. So... And they were still making trouble, you know, along the Bozeman Trail, Fort Fetterman, Fetterman's Massacre, things like that. And so it came to a head in about 1875, 1876. And they were also, there was a gold rush in the Black Hills, which was the ancestral home of the Sioux. Before that, the Cheyenne and the Crow. And so for all these reasons, uh, they kind of maneuvered. It was political maneuvering. And uh, they sent out kind of an order to all these agencies. And they sent out a few men out to some of the, uh, the Indians out in the field, saying they had to come in to the agencies by, I can't remember the date, I think it was either January 31st, something like that, February 31st, or they were going to be herded in and chastised. And so, of course, they were like holed up in the winter, and they had no, you know, intent of coming into those agencies at all, much less in the middle of the winter. A few of them did straggle in later. But um, so that's why, uh, you know, the order was given to go herd up and chastise and take care of the uh, remaining, quote unquote, hostiles. Yeah, I, I find it interesting, too, how there, there was, uh, you touched on it a little bit right there, the, the political maneuvering, because uh, like in the book, you mentioned how there's the Eastern view and then the Western view, which in the Western view is like very practical. It's like, we got to open up the land for settlement and get the Indians back on the reserves. And then by contrast, there's the Eastern point of view, which is like more, I guess, idealistic. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting because, and you could still almost see that viewpoint all throughout history. Like even nowadays, especially in Canada, there's like, we think of like the Eastern liberal viewpoint compared to the West. So it's still relevant today. <laughs> it's funny that it's actually like that in Canada too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let, let's get to the campaign then. So they, the American army sends out the ultimatum, a few of the Indians come in and once they don't come in, then the, the die is sort of cast. Right. And then the army's on the, and the, and the army seems to have been itching for this fight. Well, it, well, some of the politicians were, and some of the, uh, you're right. Probably a few of the uh, higher-ranking officers. The you know the U.S. Army at that time, like I said, it was a panic. And ever since uh, in the 20 years since the end of the Civil War, the, the U.S. Army had been uh, downgraded from two million men overall in the Union Army at the uh, 
time of the Civil War to at the time of Little Bighorn, there were about less than 25,000 men in the U.S. Army. And actually, there was a bill, which would probably have gotten passed if it wasn't for the U.S. Army, I mean, for the Little Bighorn, to even make it a smaller army. A lot of people thought, we don't need a standing army. What do we need a standing army for? So, U.S. I mean, uh, so at that point, the U.S. Army was in very sad shape. Uh, a lot of the sergeants and officers were veterans of the civil war and a lot of them were heavy drinkers i mean you can imagine all that trauma from the civil war that wasn't even you know given any consideration back then because we didn't think of ptsd but uh there was a many heavy drinkers and they started uh kind of cleaning the what they call the old army out in the 1880s and the 1890s um so the army wasn't in great shape the 7th Cavalry was thought of as this wonderful Indian fighting unit. And really their, their experience was a few skirmishes, you know, with sitting bow here and there. And like I said, a lot of the, uh, the enlisted men were, uh, some of them, uh, there was a new shipment of enlisted men out there uh, to the 7th Cavalry, uh, I think 60 men who had never shot their rifles. At the, at the time, the, the U.S. Army was so underfunded that they only allowed 15 rounds a month for practice for their, uh, for their rifles. And they had, uh, three years earlier, they had adopted a single shot Springfield carbine uh, rifle, a single shot, as opposed to a semi-automatic because they thought it would spend too much money on, you know, ammunition. Really? That's how cheap it was. So these men were not really prepared. Uh, in some talks, I used to kind of compare it to a, uh, like a World Series or an All-Star game where, you know, there's this from the East, led by George Custer, the renowned <laughs> Seven, 7th Cavalry, against the little known, because nobody knew much about the uh, quote-unquote hostile Indians led by Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, Gaul, Crow King, lots of very, very good uh, military men and fighters. And, uh, you know, nobody knew much about them. And there weren't more than, at the Little Bighorn, there were probably maybe about 1,500, I'm thinking, 7,000, 8,000 total Indians, maybe 1,500, maybe 2,000 at the most. Custer, uh, like he, he was warned. I, actually, I really like the, part, the, the prologue of your book where you have this uh, scene of this scout who the night before the battle, he, he's with the other Indian scouts and in the distance, the Indian scouts can, can see the sitting bulls camp on the bighorn. And they're, they're talking about like, they're telling this, I think his name is Barnum. They're like, you got to look close. You got to, we can see the, the horses you got. It's like looking for worms in the grass. It's very right. evocative. But anyways, Custer, he, he knew that this, he was being warned that this was a massive Indian encampment. He was, he, I mean, you know, the funny thing was, of course it was a three pronged operation. He was coming from, Fort Lincoln in the Dakotas from the east, from the north, uh, Gibbon, General Gibbon, another Civil War hero, was coming down from Fort Ellis on the Yellowstone. He had about 400, 450 men. Uh, And then Crook was coming up the Bozeman Trail from Fetterman. Uh, And it was thought that it was never really a combined operation. It was just kind of a pincer move where all three of these groups was uh, thought fully... uh, 
qualified to defeat the Indians. I mean, it wasn't like they were going to combine somewhere and defeat the Indians on one day. Um, now, Custer had just a couple months before they set out, had uh, testified in Washington, D.C. against Grant's uh, some friends and one of his brothers about, uh, you know, shady goings on, corruption in the, the, the sutler, the trader position, post-trader position. Um, so he was not in good favor with uh, Grant, who at first said he is not going to accompany his column. And Custer had to, like, write a, a, a pleading letter to his immediate superior, General Terry, begging to be to go along. And at first, Custer was kind of supposed to uh, be in charge of the whole, um, the, that whole column, but uh, he was only given uh, control of the, the 7th Cavalry. But uh, he was given, you know, once they got to the Yellowstone, he was given his orders and, you know, let loose to find the Indians, chastise. Yeah. He had about 650 people uh, combining enlisted men, officers. He probably had 50 or 60 scouts, Indians, whites, things like that. Fascinating group of people, actually. Yeah. Before reading your book, I was always under the, like, you hear about Custer's last stand and how he, and he was wiped out in the massacre. I didn't realize that. It's not like Custer's entire regiment was destroyed. It was a, like a, a part of it. Yeah, everybody, and, thinks, and, everybody thinks it's, uh, you know, his entire command when it wasn't. He had all 12 companies, 12 companies in a regiment at that point. And they were all undermanned. Officers were on leave, on detached service. And some officers had been jumped over, placed uh, in command of other companies. It was kind of a mess. And, yeah, and, and the politics of it, too, is, well, I mean, there's the politics of, like you just said, Grant not wanting Custer to go on the campaign and he has to beg to go on it. And then there's the politics of, uh, like, his subordinates, Reno and Benteen. It oh, seemed like they, they yeah. hate the man. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of currents. Uh, and that's one of the more interesting things about it. Uh, Custer, he had a lot of friends, but some people hated him. And, and Benteen, who's a, also another fascinating character, Captain Benteen, hated him with a passion. It was almost a pathology. And uh, yeah, Reno was, was just a mess. He's one of these officers we talked about that uh, he was a very heavy drinker. He wasn't respected by other officers. He wasn't respected by his enlisted men. Uh, once in a bar, Benteen had slapped him across the face. <laughs> Nobody had respect for Reno. Uh, another a, a great historian named Robert Utley, who's written a lot of books on the West, called him a, a besotted mediocrity. Wow. <laughs> so he was the ranking major. There were three majors. The other two were gone. So he was the only major. Uh, and he was just a mess. He was just a total mess. But, you know, uh, I don't know if we want to start talking about the actual battle. Well, yeah, I, I, was, so, I was hoping we could get into that. Like when Custer, maybe we can like pick up where Custer divides his force. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you mentioned uh, he wanted to get close and send out some, you know, recon. Call it today, of course. They didn't call it a recon there, but some scouts and find out. Nobody knew exactly where this village, which had been growing by the day, was exactly. They knew it was somewhere on or around the Bighorn River or the Little Bighorn River, which is an offshoot, of course, of the Bighorn. But they didn't know exactly where it was, which is why plans were very vague he was just supposed to find them and chastise them or bring him into the you know bring him into the the agencies so he rode down with his 650 men uh, down the powder river and hooked over um and the night before 
uh, his scouts went up to a little place about 18, 20 miles away from where the camp was on a little beacon called the Crow's Nest. I've been there. It's kind of a neat little bowl. Uh, and um, then they went back uh, that morning and brought Custer over there. And he couldn't see them either because the Indians, at least at that time, had superior vision. And they just said, look for worms over there in the hills. Look for worms. And that's what they thought they called the, uh, or at least that's how they referred to the the herd of thousands, probably more than 10,000 ponies and, and horses that were on the hills uh, just above the valley. And he couldn't see them, but he trusted them. And several scouts told him, the Indians and also some of the, uh, the other scouts told him, there's a lot of Indians down there. But, you know, no one was ever, no one ever voiced any worries about being defeated by the Indians. The whole, the, what everybody was worried about was the Indians scattering, which is what they always did, because they could move much faster, of course. And um, the problem was taking them to battle, finding them and keeping them there. So nobody was worried about uh, losing to the Indians uh, in battle. But what he did was, uh, instead of taking that extra day to seriously reconnoiter and make sure he knew exactly where they were, how many, how many uh, people were there, uh, there he and his his column were seen twice by some Indians and they thought that the Indians were going to bring word to them. So he thought we got to get go get him now. So he did actually surprise the camp, believe it or not, that morning, uh, that afternoon, actually when he got there just a little afternoon. Um, but then he made the mistake of, of uh, splitting his, not splitting, but dividing his force into four separate units. There was the pack train, which is much slower, which was miles in the back. He sent Benteen off to the left to go make sure there were no other satellite Indian camps south of uh, the major one, because that's what had happened um, eight years earlier at the Washita. We captured this small um, camp of about 50 uh, TPs and was surprised by a bunch of Indians coming up from another camp. So we wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So Benteen had three companies, and he went down, and he was lost for hours. Not lost, but at least uh, lost to Custer. And then Custer split up and told, when they got to the river, told Reno, take three companies, charge up the, uh, the valley and attack the, um, the village. And then he took five companies and went up along the hills, and he was going to attack them from, the, uh, you know, another point, like, you know, classic pincer attack, but uh, he didn't tell anybody what anybody else was going to do. So nobody knew what anybody else was going to do, and it became um, a defeat in detail. Indians weren't, didn't think strategically. They, they thought tactically. Their only two uh, strategies were a surprise attack and an ambush. So, but they were, you know, they defeated Reno when he broke from the timber where his three companies were and, and retreated back down uh, the valley, and that, that released many Indians to go attack Custer and reinforce those forces. So it was a defeat in detail. You can sort of understand where Custer's coming from. Like, if he's so worried that the Indian camp is gonna, gonna split and flee, then, then like, yeah. on paper anyways, like, his plan does make sense that he's trying to, like, you know, cut it off and... Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, he, he wanted to get to them. He wanted to bring them to battle he wasn't worried about uh, how many Indians there were. So he thought sending 
Reno up the valley with about 140, 45 men uh, made sense. And he thought Benteen would, would be back very soon. Uh, and that was three more, about, you know, 140, 150 more men. And the pack train was going to come up with, oh, I don't know, they had about 100 men. So he thought they were doing fine. Um, but it's not the way it worked out. You know, there was a thing people used to write about even back then called Custer's Luck. Because during the Civil War, he, he always seemed to be a lucky guy. He had 11 horses shot out from underneath him. Wow. Incredibly a fearless guy in battle, led from the front, which is why his men loved him during the war. Changed, of course, uh, in the post-war army. But, uh, you, you know, you could say his luck just ran out. Yeah, I guess so. When Ben Teen comes back, this to me is like an incredible picture. Ben Teen comes back and he gets the note from Custer, something along the lines of hurry up, uh, bring the ammunition. But he comes across Reno and Reno says, hey, you, you got to stay here because I've lost half my men. Like, I don't go to help Custer, help me because I'm in trouble. And then exactly. Ben Teen has to make this decision. Yeah, well, he he gets back um, and makes his way north and gets right to some hills where Reno and his dilapidated, uh, you know, three companies are staggering up the hill, some with horses, some not, on the other side of the river. And, um, yes, he had gotten two uh, messages, and one of them was the classic one that we still have a a copy of, uh, you know, Big Village, Be Quick. Bring packs and his PS. Bring packs, meaning ammo. And of course, uh, people have pointed out that he didn't do either of those. He wasn't right. quick, and he didn't bring packs. So uh, when he met Reno, and Reno was, uh, by the way, Reno had been seen by several men drinking just before the charge up the valley. You know that classic quote unquote liquid courage. Right. Uh, and he was in no frame of mind to be much of a leader. Benteen kind of took over for the next three days, by the way. Um, but, and Reno pretty much stayed drunk. Um, and, you know, they, four, four miles north, there was a lot of noise. They knew where the battle was. And, you know, that classic military maximum uh, ride to the sound of the guns, well, they didn't. They finally did when uh, one officer essentially said, screw this. Something's going on there. So he took his company of men and started north. And then the rest of the men, Benteen and Reno's men, they sort of straggled after. But they got to a point called Weir Point where they could see what was happening about three miles away. And, geez, all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of Indians coming towards them pretty soon. So they backed up to uh, the Reno-Benteen field, the little bowl where, you know, you could still see there and stay there for the next day and a half until the Indians retreated. Yeah, so so they they must they they had an idea of what was going on with with Custer. Like they they must have known that, you know, even though they can't see exactly what's happening, and they're really not that far away. I, I imagine the the geography is a lot like Alberta, where I live, with like rolling hills, and you can't really see that far. But they right. must have known that he was in trouble. Well, you would think. Yes, you would think. Lots of you know, this was back in the time of um, black powder, so there was lots and lots of smoke, and you know. Let's face it, hundreds, maybe more than a thousand Indians running around four miles away. You can see something with your binoculars. Um, you know, they weren't super powerful binoculars, but they were probably five times. Uh, you know, you could see something was going on. So, yeah. They, they, were, just, they were just beaten at this point. They, yeah, they, they, they were. Reno especially. But, you know, they had been, been fussing around or futzing around for a couple hours. 
And so yeah. it was a little late by that time. Yeah, and, so, they, and in your book, you, you mentioned how the soldiers with Bantine and Reno, they, they can look down the valley and see the Indians scalping and doing, well, I mean, just mutilating the bodies. And, and that's, yeah. I mean, that's got to be bad for morale and yeah, quickly, right. quickly like sapping any will to, to ride out. Yeah, Ray, Reno or Bentine, I can't remember which one. I think Bentine later claimed, that, oh, we just thought, uh, you know, Custer had fought through them and was way up, you know, maybe somewhere, uh, you know, getting together with um, Gibbon and his column. And so we thought we were all alone, but uh, I don't know how many people really believe that. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, the next day, the rest of that afternoon, the next day, they were surrounded by, you know, maybe a thousand Indians shooting and uh, several dozen men were killed. And then the next day, the next afternoon, uh, you know, D-Day plus two, uh, the Indians, the Indian camp you know, went down the valley and, and they watched them cross the river a few miles away, leave thousands and thousands of Indians. And then the next day is when Gibbons, uh, Gibbons column reached them and told right. them what had happened about the 211 men that they had found dead on all around the hills, four miles north. Is, is it true that Custer was basically spared like some of the indignities of, of the battlefield? Yeah. Like afterwards? Well, well, I'll tell you, uh, it, there are two pieces of evidence um, claim, and I, I believe it uh, because one of them was an officer who said it, that his penis was cut off. And, uh, but he wasn't scalped because, uh, you know, he had just gotten a haircut uh, like a month previous. He had, you know, he's known for his long ringlets, right? Blonde ringlets. Right. right. He was going, you know, kind of bald at the top and uh, he'd cut his hair very short. And the Indians like, they like long scalps. Yeah, and all of that was done when somebody was dead, mutilation, etc. I mean, it's not like they they tortured the Plains Indians. Hardly were not known for torturing. Um, hmm. That's more of an Eastern Indian tribal thing. Yeah. So if they didn't do it while they were alive. It was it was a religious thing. You know, they yeah. thought if they mutilated the their enemy, you know, cut certain you know tendons and muscles and cut their eyes out, that they couldn't walk you know, happily in, in the, you know, the happy hunting ground. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you look at these military defeats throughout history, like the, the British in the Khyber Pass or Ishlandawana in Africa, there, there's always that one guy who gets away. And in this case, there's like, there's not, right? Like, well, there was, well, no, nobody got away. But there was a guy that on, at least there was an officer who got away on his horse and was riding away and a couple of Indians were at, a couple of Indians went after him and they had just about given up when he shot himself. Now some people think it might have been a mistake. I don't think you can mistakenly shoot yourself, especially with those weapons. And then another sergeant, at least one other sergeant, was caught going south towards uh, Reno and Benteen. He was probably caught about a mile and a half away. Some soldiers, a couple soldiers with the Reno Benteen uh, group actually saw him being caught by the Indians, right? But nobody got away to tell the tale. No, not not of Custer's two hundred eleven or twelve men. Yeah, and I, and I guess that's that's why it has that uh, still has yeah. that the resonance with people today. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it was one of the you know there are certain I call them history mysteries. Like you know, the twentieth century it was uh, one of them was Kennedy's assassination. Right. You know, a lot of people don't believe it really happened 
you know, the commission said it did. So that's like one of the great history mysteries of the 20th century. 19th century, there was, you know, John Hope, Sir John Hope Franklin's two ships, the Erebus and the Terror, trying to find the Northwest Passage yeah. that got lost. And there were dozens of ships went out after them after that. Some of them got lost. You know, finally, like five, six years ago, they found both ships. Yeah, that's right. Everybody died. So that was one of the great history mysteries of the 19th century. And I think in, in American history, I think the Custer thing is. But I, the thing about this subject is that I just think the cast of characters is one of the great, great cast of characters in, in any big story, big saga in American history. I mean, on both sides of the conflict. I mean, the Indian leaders and Custer and his officer corps, which was a melting pot of of interesting people from all around the world. They had a, a former Italian count who had escaped from Devil's Island, DeRudio, and lots of interesting men. And then he had these uh, interesting scouts like Lonesome Charlie Reynolds, who was this yeah. patrician who supposedly had been jilted and gone west. And, uh, you know, Mitch Boyer, who had been was a half-breed, as, that's what they called them back then. Uh, his mother was um, Indian's father, was a French trader who had been trained by Bridger. He was a fascinating scout and, uh, you know, just, just a really interesting cast of characters. Yeah. Really. And just, yeah, really colorful guys. Like these, these yeah. are guys who I imagine if they walked into a room in the old West, you'd, you'd notice. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, uh, <laughs> uh, it was a terrible day for the Custer family because Custer, his brother, Tom Custer, who had won two medals of honor during the civil war. Now they gave him out a little, more freely than, you know, we think of them now as, you know, the greatest, you know, you really got to earn it. But back then they didn't have all these other lesser uh, medals. So, you know, you could get one for capturing a flag. Right. Flags were like totemic back then. They were very important as you probably know. So, but his brother, Thomas Custer, captain was, you know, he commanded one of the companies and he had another brother, Boston Custer, who was along just for fun, make some money. And then he had uh, a nephew, an 18-year-old nephew, an Alti Custer, who had just gotten out of school, and he was along. And one of the other, James, well, I can't remember his last name, uh, was married to his sister. So, so that's know, five, five guys from five, the same Five family, family members. Yeah, all killed wow. in one, one day. Brutal. I know afterwards, uh, Sitting Bull, he, he takes his tribe into Saskatchewan, I believe. Yeah, he stayed uh, for maybe two winters? Two yeah, years. he was there for a couple of years. And I think one, one of his bands uh, sort of hived off. And I think they're still there in Saskatchewan. But Yeah, uh, I think so. But, you know, most of them, you know, after a while it was, man, it was, it was tough up there. Cold yeah. winters up there. Cold and, winters um, and no buffalo. No buffalo and... You know, after a while, uh, they started, parts of them, different units started leaving. And when he finally came down into the States and surrendered, like something like two years later, maybe more than that, I can't remember exactly. You know, there, it was a really bedraggled bunch of people. I don't think there was more than 100 people, a lot of old people and children. He was, he was killed by, like, by, Indian by police force, wasn't he? Yeah, Indian police force. Uh, around the time of the, uh, the wounded knee. And um, it was a prelude to that. And of course, uh, Crazy Horse was killed by a, stabbed by a, probably by a, uh, an infantryman. 
and that was screwed up too. So yeah, yeah. crazy horse, fascinating. So many, like we said, so many colorful characters. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Like that, that's been a great discussion. Uh, I, I learned a lot and really, really happy that you made the time to talk to us about Custer and the little bighorn. You know, I know that probably everybody in America knows about Custer in Canada. Uh, not so much. So I think a lot of people are going to, a lot of listeners here are going to learn a lot about, uh, the American old West and this, this event. So thanks a lot. Hey, my pleasure. Let's do it again sometime. And that concludes my interview with James Donovan, author of A Terrible Glory, Custer and the Little Bighorn. There is no better book written about this epic battle, and I've been recommending it for quite some time. If you want to buy the book, I'm going to post a link to the website www.onesoldierpodcast.com. Now, I'm going to tell you who I've got on for the next podcast episode, but before I go there, if you enjoyed the episode, if you like what I'm doing here, then you can help me out in two ways. The first is to leave a review of the podcast on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. And secondly, if you haven't done so already, you can get a copy of my books, One Soldier, A Canadian Soldier's Fight Against the Islamic State, and also The Pawns of War. Okay, so for the next episode, I've got Keith Leckie, who's going to be talking to us about his new book called Cursed, Blood of the Donnellys. This book is about the Black Donnellys, the most infamous family in Canadian history that was massacred in their home by a vigilante mob in the year 1880. It's a gruesome tale, but one that I think you're going to enjoy. Finally, I'm going to dedicate this episode to all the soldiers and the warriors who fought and died along the banks of the Little Bighorn. Out.